online, on smart speakers and on Listen Again. This is Food FM. Drinking Hour with David Kermode in partnership with Club Onologique, the world through the lens of wine and spirits. This week, the Rhone Beyond Red. We explore the white and rosé wines that might sit in the shadow of its reds but deserve our attention. Our guides, Matt Walls, author of Wines of the Rhone to Extol Its Whites, and Master of Wine, Liz Gabay and Ben Bernheim, talk about its rosé wines. Cote du Rhone is a much-loved shorthand for red wine, in this country at least, but the Rhone Valley's whites and rosés are growing in stature. Running along 200 kilometres of river, as a region, the Rhone consists of two distinct and very different zones, north and south, both renowned in different ways for their whites. So who better to guide us through those than Matt Walls, author of Wines of the Rhone, now in its second print run. Uh, Matt, uh, welcome to The Drinking Hour. Hello, David. It's great to have you here. And there's so much we could talk about uh, with the Rhone because it's so enormous and has such an illustrious history. And uh, if people want more, they'll just have to read your book. But we're going to focus uh, on on whites uh, today. And as I said, the Rhone Valley, uh, as a wine producing region, has this illustrious history. Yet white wines have tended uh, to play second fiddle uh, to reds, it, in perceptions at least, uh, with a few mm. notable exceptions. Why would that be? Well, I think it's not just the Rhone, you know. I mean, to, talking about our perceptions from the from the UK, I think we've always, as a country, given more value to red wines than white wines. I, I don't think this is something that is, that is just about the Rhone. And I think it's partly due to the fact that, you know, historically the wines that we've imported from France, from Portugal, from elsewhere have been red wines. You know, particularly if you go a little bit further back, back to the 1800s and beyond, in fact, often it'll be red wines that were exported. So those are the wines that have had a longer time to kind of, uh, for us to get used to, for them to build their brands. You know, delicate whites, they don't travel so well, particularly if they're traveling, you know, in barrel or whatever a long time ago. So I think that's partly why we tend to have historically valued red wines more than whites. But yeah, I think, you know, this is something that, that the Rhone does kind of suffer from a little bit as well. But personally speaking, I think there are some absolutely fabulous white wines being made in the Rhone Valley. Uh, and indeed, you know, there are certain appellations in the Rhone which are exclusively white wine, which are absolutely fabulous. And some of the finest white wines in the world, I would say, are coming from the Northern Rhone in particular. I tend to assume that uh, the Rhone is about 90% red. It's actually quite hard to sort of drill down and find the precise figures. Um, But you are uh, Mr. Roan, so you must have those figures. (laughs) Uh, I do. Yes, I do. I have a a, a great deal. I have spreadsheets upon spreadsheets of figures. So I think the most recent figures that I have, which um, are for 2022, is that 12% of the wine coming from the Rhone Valley as a whole is white. 12% is rosé. And the remaining 76% is red. But by that, by the, by the whole of the Rhone Valley, or I mean the, the northern Rhone cruise, the southern Rhone cruise, but also including 
those satellite appellations such as Luberon, Cassiopeiae, uh, Grignon les Edomars. So it's it's all of them in total. And actually, it comes to 12% white. So it's a little bit more than perhaps um, some people might assume. It is indeed. Uh, talking of history, I talked in very broad brush terms about this uh, illustrious uh, winemaking history, which is no exaggeration, I don't think, uh, in the context of the Rhone. But does that history um, incorporate uh, kind of reds and whites and rosés in equal measure? Well, there are certain appellations which, are, like I was saying, have always made white wine. And um, certainly there are others, for example, uh, Chateau du Pape in the south, who make red wine and white wine. And the white wine there, it's, you know, it's not a new thing. They've been making white wine for hundreds of years as they've been making reds. So um, often, you know, when you look at some other appellations like Claret de Bellegarde, which is down in the south near Costa de Nîmes, um, they have a, again, that's an exclusively white wine appellation. And that used to be used as a sacramental wine. So they used to use white wine down there in this particular region. Um, so there are some kind of links there to, um, uh, to to religion as well, as as there so often is when it comes to wine. And uh, when we talk about uh, the Rhone Valley, uh, it breaks up uh, into north and south, uh, fairly obviously, and uh, they really are very different places. In terms of white wine, um, obviously we have um, uh, an, an exclusively white um, appellation up there in the north in uh, Condria, are we talking a, a kind of about a, a, a kind of equal focus on white um, in both north and south? Do you think? Uh, no, there's definitely more focus on whites in the north. So in the northern Rhone, as you were saying, you know, the northern Rhone and the southern Rhone they are completely different regions and really should be taken kind of quite separately. I mean, for example, in the in the northern Rhone, they don't make rosé in any of the crews, so you'll never find a rosé in the northern Rhone. Uh, but they do make quite a lot of white wines. So I think about seventeen percent, in fact, of wine in the northern Rhone is white, uh, but there's no rosé. Whereas in the southern Rhone, uh, there's there's much less white. There's only 5% white, but there's much more rosé. There's about 12% rosé created down in the south. So in terms of focus on white, yeah, it's definitely much bigger in the north. Uh, you, we, we mentioned Condria as being one appellation which only makes white wine. There's another one. In fact, there's Saint-Péret, which is the most southerly crew in the northern Rhone. They only make white wine next door to Cornas. And there's Saint-Joseph. You know, they make quite a bit of white wine. Hermitage. Actually, a lot of the white wine, a lot of the wine of Hermitage is white. And some people actually say when it comes to ageability of white, of wines in general, the whites from Hermitage age better than the reds. And certainly in my experience, I've had whites from Hermitage going back uh, decades, which is still absolutely fantastic. I mentioned Condria. I, I suppose it's a bit like Chateauneuf-du-Pape in that it's incredibly famous and and therefore, it's a name that people are more likely to know than some of the other places that you have uh, rightly ju just mentioned. But talk a little bit about Condrieur uh, for those who might be familiar with the name, but not necessarily the wines. So Condrieur is, is a fascinating little appellation, actually. So it's right up in the northern pole of the Northern Rhone. Uh, it's next door to Cobro Tea, which people might be a bit more familiar with. But it's 100% white. And it's, uh, it's all made from Viognier. So it's 100% Viognier. And it, in fact, the Appalachian itself nearly died out completely in the 1960s, I think it was. There was only about seven hectares left in the whole of the Appalachian. And at that time, there was no Viognier planted anywhere else in the world. It was only found here in this little Appalachian in the Northern Rhone. So had it have died out as it nearly did, we'd have completely lost Viognier. So there would be no Viognier left on the planet, which would be... a you know, for me, it would be a terrible shame because I think the when Viognier is grown in particular conditions, particularly 
on these granite slopes, kind of overlooking the Rhone, I think the wines can be absolutely fantastic. And Viognier is a bit of a, a strange variety. I, think. I don't know about you, but some mm. I often find that people either really, really love it or they really, really don't. And um, but I think it's possible to to love Condria even if you're not a big fan of Viognier because the expression that you get. Um, when it's grown on these kind of particularly um, kind of very, very old terraced granite slopes, it, it gives the wine a certain freshness and a certain salinity, which gives it, I suppose, more uh, more balance and more drinkability to, to compare to some other Viognier's from around the world. It's interesting. You talk about the love-hate kind of Marmite uh, relationship with Viognier, and um, uh, I both love it? and hate it um, in, in equal <laughs> measure, actually, because um, at its worst, there are examples that are blousy, uh, loose, um, yeah. you know, just, just there's no acidity, I'm a, an acid hound. Um, yet, uh, in the right hands, it can have a um, almost, um, it, it sounds absurd, and it's not correct, but a phenolic acidity. Um, it can have that kind of beautiful um, phenolic character where it's really well managed, where it's absolutely um, divine, and not just in in the Rhone, you know, uh, in 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 Australia too, in the in the right hands. So it is um, it is a, 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 obviously a um, quite a difficult grape to handle, I would guess. Is it? It is, yeah. So it's quite susceptible to disease. Um, it doesn't like the wind, which isn't brilliant when you're in the Northern Rhone because you get this very strong north wind. Um, so it has to be tied up on wires. So it's, it can be a little bit prone to botrytis sometimes, which isn't always brilliant if you're trying to make dry whites. And, you know, when it comes to picking date, you've got to get it absolutely right, because if you wait for too long, the alcohols go absolutely crazy, the acidity drops, and that's when you end up with this kind of flabby, oily, kind of soapy expression of Yonia, which really isn't very nice. But it's, yeah, it's a matter of picking date, getting that absolutely nailed on uh, to, to retain the acidity and making sure the alcohols don't go too high. Let's talk about some of the other white grape varieties and a real favourite of mine, but I've got to be honest and say it's only in very recent years that I've become properly aware of it even, is Grenache Blanc. Mm, yeah, well, it's the most widely planted white in the Southern Rhone. Mutation of Grenache Noir, of course. Uh, you get Grenache Gris as well, uh, a little bit in the Southern Rhone. Uh, and those are the three kind of of the Grenache family that you find in the Southern Rhone. And it can be a lovely variety. Um, for me, often it's the... Um, I suppose it's the canvas on which you kind of you can you can paint the more characterful varieties of the Southern Rhone. So you you find a bit of um, you find some grapes, for example, which are very aromatic down there, like the Grenache Viognier, of course. There's also some kind of quite um, aromatic grapes, such as uh, I suppose Claret. But then there's also other grapes which add other things to the blend, such as uh, Picpoul, such as Bourboulanc. Uh, which give more of a kind of vibrancy and a, an attention and, and acidity, actually, to the blend. So I think any one of those more extremely characterful grapes on their own, such as Bourbon by itself, uh, isn't always that interesting. Or, or sometimes the opposite is true, actually. It's almost too much character. It's too extreme. So a little bit of those grapes kind of painted over the canvas of Grenache Blanc can, can make for a really uh, lovely one, I think. A Claret is another one that uh, perhaps... Uh, those listening might not be quite so familiar with. Yeah, and, and for me, uh, I actually think it's more interesting than Grenache Blanc. I mean, it's, it, again, it's probably, what, the second most planted, second or third most planted in the Southern Rhone. But it's a grape that I absolutely love. And it's, it's also a grape which I was quite surprised about when I was trying to research 
um, the variety a little bit when I was living down in the road. Because everybody would talk to me about this uh, this this fresh, this acid kind of grape called Claret. And, but whenever I tasted it, actually, I thought, well, this isn't particularly high acid. And, you know, the more I've tasted it, the more I've realised that this freshness, you know, it's not, it doesn't come from acidity. Um, actually, it's quite moderate in acidity. Uh, but it has this lovely kind of subtle, soft, um, aromatic freshness, which really brings the wine alive. And uh, there are two appellations down in the south which grow exclusively Claret. So one's called Cote de Dix, uh, which is in the Diwa, where they make uh, it's like sparkling Claret de Dix. Uh, but it's just a, it's a lovely still wine. And there's another one a bit further south that I mentioned before, Claret de Bellegarde. So again, you get it's clearly valued in the Southern Rhone as much as it's a culture of blending in the Southern Rhone. But there are two appellations which are completely dedicated to this one white variety. And, and quite right, too. I think it's absolutely gorgeous, particularly when it's grown in places like Chateauneuf-du-Pape. makes for quite, um, quite powerful, quite rich styles, but with amazing longevity as well, which is kind of surprising. Again, you know, a bit like um, Hermitage. It's a low-acid grape, making quite low-acid wines, but wines that can age for decades. Yeah, really interesting. Uh, we should talk about uh, Marsan and Roussin as well. Absolutely, yeah. So kind of sibling grape varieties i suppose i mean that they're stylistically quite similar uh in as much as they um they're reasonably full-bodied quite low acidity um quite textural grapes um but they do kind of aromatically and textually have their own character a little bit i think marsan is a little bit more expressive in terms of its aromatics so there's more apricot more peach honeysuckle some kind of slightly nutty elements Roussan for me is more about um, pear and kind of white flowers. And it has a more of a kind of slight grain on the palate as well. It's not quite as um, smooth, I would say, as Marsan. Um, so and al- although they both originated in the northern Rome and they both worked their way down south, so you can find a bit of Marsan and a bit of Roussan in, in the south, Roussan seems to have taken to the southern Rome conditions a little bit better than Marsan, I would say. I think Roussan can really... You get a different style of Roussan down in the south. It's, it's bigger, it's more powerful, it's richer. It takes really well to oak as well. So a lot of the really good um, Chateauneuf-du-Paps um, are, are based on Roussan, or even pure Roussan, like um, uh, Chateau de Beaucastel. Their uh, Roussan Vieux for me, is one of the greatest white wines of, of the Rhone. Indeed, one of the greatest white wines um, in France, I would say. Wow. I shall look that one up. Um, I should also mention a grape that I love in... Uh, Provence, uh, by the name of Roll, of course, down there. But Vermentino, uh, that has a uh, an important role to play, doesn't it? Uh, yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't. It does in certain um, appellations. It does. It's not terribly widely planted. It's, it doesn't tend to be allowed in um, many of the more famous appellations. Many of the crew they don't really use Roll Vermentino. Um, but it's much more common in some of the satellite appellations. So you find a little bit in Costier de Nîmes, which is down there near the Mediterranean. You find uh, a little bit in Ventoux uh, as it kind of climbs the slopes of Mont Ventoux. But I think you, the, the appellation for me, which is most closely associated with Vermentino, is the Luberon. And so the Luberon is, is um, it's, it's a large valley. It's out there to the east of the main Côte d'Ivoire growing area. And the white wines down there can be absolutely delicious. And they make a lot of white wine. In fact, 30% of their production in the Luberon is white. And a lot of it is based around Vermentino. And what it gives, I think, which is particularly interesting, which you don't really find elsewhere, in particularly in the Southern Rhone, 
um, is it gives a kind of a zesty freshness, like a kind of like, almost like citrus skin, like kind of tangerine skin, kind of, um, you find a little bit of that kind of bitter hint, that refreshing kind of positive bitterness. And it makes for um, a really refreshing style of wine, like almost kind of like a aperitif style wine, which you don't really find that much in the rest of the Southern Rhone. They, they do tend to be kind of quite bigger, rounder, kind of generous white wines, uh, they tend to be food wines, but for me, what, what Vermentino does, it just kind of lightens things up, and it kind of spritzes things up a little bit, and it can create um, wines which are more drinkable by themselves. So I, I think it's, um, particularly with climate change, for example, um, I think it's adding a little bit of freshness, and it wouldn't surprise me, actually, if we begin to see more and more of it kind of allowed into some of the other appellations around the Southern Road. Yeah, interesting. And uh, so good to hear you talking about Luberon, because every time I taste a wine from there, I want to taste another one, which is a, yeah. um, a very, a very good sign. Um, let's talk about blending, because uh, that is something that um, across the Rhone, um, they kind of own uh, in that mm. they, they do it so uh, brilliantly. And of course, it also kind of helps them uh, deal with presumably, you know, things like vintage variation and also, I'm guessing, climate change. Yeah, so as, as we said before, you know, there really is a culture of blending in the Southern Rhone. And, um, and there are so many different varieties for them to choose from as well. And, and in fact, that is a particular um, weapon in their armoury against climate change. So I think, for example, if the only grape that you're working with is Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, or, you know, you're more limited in the, in the grapes that you can play with, um, you're likely to see the effects of climate change um, more immediately, I think. But if you have a whole load of different grapes varieties to choose from, you can, um, as you were saying, you know, you can alter the blend a little bit. You can use different varieties, which add a little bit of freshness here and there. So I think that is one positive that the Southern Rhone has, you know, in their fight against climate change. Um, but there are other things as, as, as well as blending. That, that people can do. So I think, you know, there's a bit of altitude there, as we mentioned, that is uh, too. So people can keep planting up those slopes, you know, as, as you go north, you get more freshness, keep more acidity, uh, keep more kind of aromatic freshness as well. Um, and you can plant on some of the north facing slopes because it's quite an undulating, kind of slightly mountainous um, area, particularly around the edges of the main Coderone growing area. But yeah, I mean, g- going back to blending, um, there are some really, really lovely grape varieties which people are beginning to reevaluate a little bit, I think, particularly in the light of climate change. So uh, the most widely planted grape variety in the south, of course, is Grenache. But there are also a lot of um, kind of much more um, less well-known grape varieties, things like Cunois, things like Vaccares. And, and these are grapes which can be used, you know, which are permitted to be used in Chateau du Pape and some of the kind of the, the more famous appellations. Um, and the more I talk to people down in the south, the more I hear about pe- people planting coulards, planting baccarats, planting terret noir, because they ripen at about 12, 12.5% alcohol. So you can use that in the blend to bring down the alcohols from the Syrah, from the Grenache, uh, to create a more balanced blend. That's interesting because um, I tend to think of um, rising alcohol levels with uh, hotter conditions being uh, more of a a red problem uh, but actually uh, nobody really wants uh, a massive uh, alcohol white wine i mean if it's well integrated and it's with food then then maybe that's fine but i i, I think you know there's a kind of emphasis on delicious freshness with 
uh, with white wine. Um, is that more of a challenge for those making white wine in the Rhone than for those making red, do you think? I think, well, you know, it's a challenge for people making any style of wine. But, but yeah, I mean, it is a challenge for people making whites. Again, you know, particularly thinking of Condry, I think there's been a few vintages recently, like 18 and 19, uh, particularly 18, where just the, the alcohols have just felt a bit uncomfortably high. Um, you know, it's it's tricky because people say, oh, well, you know, why not pick sooner? And OK, you know, that's one thing you can consider. But you also need to get the grapes fully ripe in order to get a real expression of the place. Because otherwise, if you pick the Viognier too ripe, uh, sorry, so if you pick it underripe, you're going to end up with a wine which um, just is more varietal. It just tastes of a more kind of classic Viognier. You know, I think you really need to get your whites ripe in order to get you know, a full expression. So it's, it's slightly tricky for whites, sure. But then again, you know, let's not forget that, at least in Condria, they're quite used to making grapes, uh, sorry, making wines with low acidity, with 14% alcohol. So you know, making rich whites, you know, that's kind of what they already do, is what they know how to do. So perhaps, you know, in, in some ways, again, the, the Rhone isn't too badly placed in order to counter um, the effects of climate change. Would it be fair to say that the whites of the Rhone have risen in stature in recent years? Yeah, I think so. Well, um, personally speaking, I've, I've always thoroughly enjoyed the whites of the Rhone. But the more I go down to the southern Rhone and, and the northern Rhone as well, uh, I keep hearing the same story when I talk to winemakers, which is um, their whites are absolutely flying out. They're selling out very early within three or four months of putting the new vintage on sale. They're gone. So they seem to be picking up in terms of popularity uh, more broadly as well which I think is a positive. I think some people are looking for um, food-friendly styles of white kind of outside of Burgundy, where the prices, let's face it, have really risen a lot in the past few years. Uh, and I think it's fairly um, normal to be looking to, to the Rhone instead because they, you know, they famously make very food-friendly whites um, at more affordable prices. So I think that's one reason why people are beginning to look kind of look to the Rhone and look to those whites and discover those whites and discover how good they are these days. And if someone listening to this uh, feels that they are not as familiar with whites of the Rhone as they should be and have been inspired by you uh, and what you've said, um, what um, would you recommend? Because obviously we're talking about, you know, thousands of wines, but what would you recommend would be some sort of essentials to try if you want to improve your palette when it comes to uh, whites in the road well i suppose if you wanted to find some some white wines to try i would say you could look at a few in the north and a few in the south so if we look at the northern Rhone, um some of the more accessible wines accessible white wines in terms of price would be crow's hermitage so there's some lovely fresh whites from crows these days uh, also from saint joseph uh, we've mentioned Condrio and Hermitage, but, you know, these are kind of much more top-end in terms of price. So if you're just looking to explore to see if you like it or not, I would say start with Crow's Hermitage. The whites there are um, they're made of blends of uh, Marsan or Roussan, either that or they're pure Marsan, pure Roussan. And they certainly give you um, a, a good idea of what to expect from the Northern Rhone. So I would say look at Crow's to start with. In the Southern Rhone, it's a little bit trickier because there are so many different grape varieties to choose from. There are so many different terroirs. It makes for a much more diverse style, uh, more diverse styles of white wines. So I would say you can always start with um, just straight Cote de Rhone. 
you know, just try some white coat drones. Very easy to find. You can find them in the supermarkets. I would imagine the vast majority of independent wine merchants will have a white coat drone. So, um, yeah, you could you could start with that, and, and then perhaps move up to perhaps something like a white vacuras. So, vacuras is a lovely terroir. It's just to the northeast of Chateauneuf du Pape, and for me, it's it's long been associated with, with with red wines. They don't make a lot of white wine, maybe like four or five percent, but um, but some of the whites from there can be absolutely wonderful at about half the price of Chateauneuf du Pape whites. So. I would look at if you're looking for particular names. I would look for Le Song de Caillou. I would look for Domaine de la Monardière, uh, and I would look at Rucas Tumba. So those are three producers who make absolutely sensational white wines, um, which really still aren't that expensive at all. And then you know if you want to move on from there, you could look at the whites of Chateau de Pape. Great, that's a shopping list and a half. Uh, <laughs> you were talking about the sheer number of um, varieties, the sheer number of wines uh, produced uh, which brings us neatly onto the book um, a labor of love and uh, a, a very uh, well-received book how did you approach uh, writing about the road because it must have been very difficult to know where to start yes well there's a lot to it isn't there i suppose what i wanted to do was to create the book that i always wished i could find on the wines of the road because there was nothing out there that I could find at least, that covered all of the appellations, all of the great varieties, you know, e- even if it was just a few words, you know, e- even on the most esoteric, weird little appellation or great variety. I think, you know, what I wanted to do was create a book which really contained everything. So it contained all of the wines of the north, all of the wines of the south, all the different styles, all the satellite appellations. I wanted everything in one place. So that I thought would be, that's what I thought was missing, really, you know, on, on, on the, the bookshelves of, of um, you know, of, um, bookshops across the country. So, so that's what I wanted to create. But then I discovered quite how much work I had to do to, to, to achieve that. So it, there was a lot of driving involved. So a lot of crisscrossing, particularly the Southern Rhone. Um, so I, I did want to visit every appellation in person. I thought that was important. And to taste, you know, a good selection of the wines as well, to, to really try and uh, make sure that I hadn't missed anything, crucially. There are certain appellations out there, and I thought, oh, they're so small, do I really need to drive, you know, two hours out there into the mountains? Um, and I was always pleased that I did, because often it was these little appellations, the ones which were more tucked away, that were creating the more unusual and interesting styles. So, yeah, it was it was a bit of a labour of love. But, you know, I, I already knew the, the Rhone pretty well. Um, so there were quite a few appellations which I already knew and which I had quite a bit of detail on. So it was really, um, particularly when I was down there, it was visiting all of the smaller ones, capturing all the smaller styles, the sweet wines, the sparkling wines, um, the more kind of esoteric styles um, that, 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 that I had to do. But, um, but, you know, I mean, what a privilege, what a great opportunity it was for me and my family to move down there to live down there for two years in the sun with the amazing food, the great wine. So, um, so yeah, it was it was a fantastic experience, actually. Yeah, it took over your life, but in a good way, uh, by the sounds of it. So that's great. And it was mm-hmm. well worth doing because I think the world, uh, the wine world at least, needed a, um, a reference book um, of, of that quality for a, what is a, a sometimes 
uh, well, beguiling, definitely, but but also quite confusing place uh, sometimes. So uh, it's it's a great uh, guide uh, to uh, to the Rhone, uh, white, red, rosé, the rest, frankly. Um, Matt, it's always great to chat to you. Um, thank you so much for joining us uh, to talk whites uh, from the Rhone here on the Drinking Hour. It's a pleasure. Thanks very much, David. Good to talk to you. Turning our attention to the Rhone's rosé wines next. That style is nothing new, of course, but it's fair to say that the boom in rosé sales has piqued our interest. Liz Gabay, Master of Wine, is a leading authority on rosé based in the south of France, working with her son, Ben Bernheim. And uh, Liz, uh, it's a great pleasure to uh, chat. Welcome to The Drinking Hour. Thank you very much. Good to be with you. Great to have you. So the Rhone, we certainly over here have tended to automatically associate the Rhone with red wine. Uh, but rosé is is big news there, isn't it? It's big news um, in the South. Um, I think it's uh, red wine is the sort of the continuous down all the Rhone. But the Southern Rhone, uh, rosé is very big. You know, when you've got appellations like Costier de Nîmes with over 40% rosé, that definitely pushes it up. And the big advantage is that you can transfer red to rosé depending on your, I mean, not year by year, but you have the plants, you have the vines, which allows for that shift. Is it that easy to kind of switch from making red to to rosé? Because as you say, you've got the grape varieties already. In theory, yes. In practice, no. In that... Um, You know, a lot of producers say that rosé is a difficult wine to make. It's not a difficult wine to make a bad rosé, unsurprisingly. Um, But to make a good rosé, yes. Um, And one thing that Ben and I have increasingly noticed is the better rosés do not come from the red wine vineyards or even always the same grapes. So it's a theoretical switch, really. And it's also not quite as simple as this plot wasn't ripening enough for the reds so we'll use it for the roses that they each had different pros and cons and a plot that makes fantastic red might also make fantastic rosé and likewise a plot that cannot make good red might also not make good rosé so it's it's much more complicated yes it's just that in theory it sounds good for marketing and it's also important to remember that the Rhone Almost every appellation in the Rhone allows a lot of white varieties in the rosé, and they're very short on white varieties. Um, so the Good point. So it's not just the red varieties, even if we we have the tendency to think of that. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, I want to talk about why it's so difficult to make in a moment, if that's okay. But let's keep to varieties then. Uh, so what uh, can we expect to find necessarily in a Rhone rosé? Grenache. Grenache is fairly all-pervasive, and Sanso. A fair amount of Syrah. Um, I have to say Syrah can be one of my least favourite varieties for rosé because it can be wine gummy and jammy. A bit of Mourvedre creeping in. I mean, I'm not talking about Tavel because Tavel is somewhere else completely. Carignan, bit of Carignan roll a um, bit of claret no claret doesn't come in more does it it comes in, in with the Tavel. whites in Tavel. um yeah so it's basically the mainstay grenache sanso syrah mourvedre don't tend to get cabernet or pinot or anything like that so it's that sort of hardcore varieties 
And we're sharing uh, you know, many of the grape varieties here that we'd find in a, a Provence uh, rosé. Where do the sort of um, similarities exist and where do they end between the very successful uh, Provence rosés and those rosés that are, let's say, really up and coming from the, uh, uh, the Rhone? This is a multi-million dollar question, really. Um, Good, excellent. I should be paid. (laughs) (laughs) If only. (laughs) I think one thing that we love about the Rhone and its rosé culture is not the fact that it's up and coming, the fact that it has so much history in the past already. And I think that's something that's very easy to overlook. Yeah, that's a really good point, Ben. I mean, um, I I think uh, my up and coming is around perception in the UK market. But you're absolutely right. Um, Both Provence and uh, and the Rhone have this um, this incredible winemaking tradition. And of course, um, the the rosé has always been uh, big news to an extent uh, in the Rhone uh, Mm. as well as Provence, hasn't it? Yes. I mean, I'm I'm just trying to think... um doing the Rhone Rosé tastings last week and talking about it and thinking of how it differs from Provence. Yes, there is a a commonality because of the Grenache and Sanso, but one thing that we tend to forget, we tend to lump Southern Rhone as a unit and the right bank and the left bank are so completely different. So the left bank coming up through Lubron and Vontu has maybe more in common with Provence, but what we're getting is altitude. Mm. So whereas in Provence you can get premium rosés in the odd altitude vineyard, you have much more altitude on that um, left bank side. A lot of freshness from that. I, I think also... On the subject of altitude, we're talking about the difference between the Rhone and Provence, and I think that's maybe actually a disingenuous distinction, and we should be talking about Côte de Provence and the Rhone. Because if, if, if you're a tourist and you wander around the Vaucluse and you're in the Appalachians of the Luberon or the Ventoux, and maybe even some parts of Côte du Rhone, if you stop someone in the street and say, are we in Provence here? They'll say, yes. Mm, um, another good point, yeah. Yes. So it's a bit like us being not in Provence, where in the Alpes-Maritimes, the Luberon is Peter Mayle land, Vin- Lavender is, is true Provence. Um, actually, I did notice some of the Sable rosés had a lavender, which I won't get into because that could be um, in my mind. Um, and then going across to the right bank, where we're looking at the Chateau Neuf rosé style, with the Galley Roulets, much bigger, much more robust. And, and that's the, the most historic part, with, yes. with Tevel, with Chusselin. Uh, um, that yes. It's really the, the Rhone's historic rosé heartland. And it's maybe more comparable to Costier de yes. as well. So, yes, yeah, so I think um, the Rhone, I think one problem with the Rhone is its vastness. And so we tend to go Rhone rosé. One of the joys of Rhone Rosé is that extreme diversity of right bank, left bank, sweetness. Um, they, they they have the full range. I think we had less oaked rosés in the Rhone. The oaked bit is up and coming. Premium Provence Rosé tends to be Côte de Provence, Côte de tends to be more an oak, whereas the Rhone Rosés tend to have more body, I would say, with 
concentrated fruit and less of the oak. Interesting. You talked about altitude. Yes. And that is uh, obviously, um, in, in very simple terms, you know, very much to their advantage uh, at a time of uh, climate crisis, isn't it? Yes, very much so. Um, and you notice it when you're driving up into the hills. You know, we were tasting roses in uh, Gigondas, up in the bits in the Ventoux, Sable, Segure, and you really are getting little vineyard patches amongst forests up in the hills, um, fairly idyllic, really, mm. um, that have all the hallmarks of freshness coming through. Uh, and that, and also you have the big, big vineyards on the plains. But we're, if we're looking at top quality, they tick all the boxes there. Yeah, you have, I've tasted with you some time ago now, and just just rosé wines, and uh, you uh, obviously you have a very discerning uh, palate. Um, just explain um, what makes a good rosé wine, if you can, in your mind. So this is a question, actually, which we often discuss between ourselves when we're doing a tasting. You know, when you're, when you're writing a tasting note... And you can say these two wines are quite similar. They're light, they're fresh, they have fruit, they have minerality. And there is one wine that you put full stop after fresh fruit, good acidity, minerality. And the other one, you start noticing layers of florality in the back. There's maybe some darker fruit, some red fruit, a bit of ripe peach coming in. And I think it's identical as with good red and whites, a good rosé, you will, as you have it in your mouth, as you're tasting it, it evolves and opens up. And I would also, I think we have found fairly consistently, and I know this is sort of shock horror, decanting a good rosé will just open out all of those flavours. So I'm looking for complexity, different nuances and different layers. Harmonious balance. I think this is where... Making good rosé is so important. Um, We taste an enormous amount of rosé that's harvested too young to keep the freshness, and then it doesn't have the fruit. So having um, lots of ripe fruit and fresh acidity, altitude, whatever, does seem to be the work. Ben will explain at great length what we don't like on a rosé because he's very good at what we don't like. Um, I suppose that the elephant in the room, as Liz has not mentioned colour once in her description of what makes a good rosé. We're not looking for the palest, we're not looking for the darkest. It just doesn't come into it at all. No. What we're also not looking for is evidence of the winemaking. Uh, I think if, if... in the glass, you're suddenly thinking, oh, I can smell the yeast, or oh, I can smell the fact it was harvested too early, or in the mouth you feel, oh, it's actually it's a bit heavy, I can taste the fact it was harvested too late. That's what we're not looking for. And that's what rosé is sometimes easy easy to get wrong, is you can smell the, the excessively grapefruity yeast, you can smell the cold fermentation, you can taste the, the late harvest because they weren't making the, the rosé just for rosé was harvested at the same time as the red. That's the problem with rosé. It's, it's maybe easier to define what's bad than what's good. I think one other thing that is talking about following on from colour is dark bottles. 
which is not Rhone or Provence, but that is often a sign for us that it's a good rosé. Um, but actually, just going back to we did not liking the winemaking, Theols are a big hate. I know it's very commercially acceptable, and a lot of people like that Sauvignon Blanc gooseberry greenness, um, but it is something, as soon as we sense it, it's like... Mm, interesting. Does that come from particular grape varieties being used or is this just down to stylistic choice on the winemaker's part? Um, it can be yeast. It is a, a fruit profile that ye- yeast producers say, because so you get either the theol enhancer or the strawberry. Temperature of fermentation, if it's too cold... Well, too, too cold or too hot will will make it more or less unpleasant, even if at the right temperature it's okay. Stabulation. Stabulation. Stabulation is something that is increasingly used in Provence, which is keeping the juice on the lees before fermentation at a very cold temperature, which gives weight, but gives this character that we're not terribly keen on. So there are all these little... I think one of the problems with rosé is that it is a problem and an advantage. One thing I love about rosé is that everyone is still learning about it and is still developing it. On the other hand, the learning about it, we are the guinea pigs experimenting with the mistakes that people are making. Yes, I have sensed that, I think, uh, in in my own uh, tasting experience, Um, which brings us neatly to why um, rosé wine is uh, considered generally more challenging to make than certain white or red wines. Why is that? Partially in that the the market, that, that a marketing demand has been created for generally a pale pink, easy quaffing, simple wine. And mass-produced rosé is able to do that. It's, it's made to a formula. What makes it difficult is if you're talking to um, a real winemaker as opposed to a big mass-produced winemaker, I'm sort of being very careful with my words here, um, they have an element of artistry in them. So how do you create a good quality rosé within those parameters of easy drinking? And what is interesting is that that is almost impossible. There are a few producers who do it, but they're they're treading a very, very fine edge. And the moment that they try doing something to make it better, we take a step into another world. And I think the biggest problem is maybe not the winemaking, but it is trying to understand what is rosé and the consumer definition of rosé and how the two fit together. Would you agree on that? Absolutely. I think that it's the this perception that it has to be pale and easy drinking. It's very difficult to make a better wine while <laughs> tying your hands and saying it's still all, no matter how good it is, it has to be pale and easy drinking. And you would say the same of a red wine. It's very difficult to make a great red wine because the only two things that matter is it has to be very, very dark and no tannins. And no tannins. You'd say it's, it's impossible to make a good red wine. And I think it's these constraints, these self-imposed constraints sometimes 
that make it difficult. Mm. And I think the Liz mentioned sort of artistry and vigneron and winemakers. And we spoke earlier about rosé being an up and coming category. These are people who maybe started their career 20 years ago, who've only made rosé for three or four vintages. Uh, potentially, they, they may not have learned to make high quality rosé when they were at winemaking school. They 15 years ago didn't care about it at all. And they probably make one cuvee, maybe 5,000 bottles, whereas every vintage for, for their entire career, they've made half a dozen reds. It's very difficult because there is only this one formula that they're aware of, and they haven't yet learned of these other formulas. They haven't yet developed their own sense of art. And I think it's just a question of time. Everything is difficult when you're first starting out. So I just have to give you a little insight into our tasting so we taste possibly a couple of hundred rosé a week and we have the technical sheets and how do you stop boredom when every single technical sheet is identical harvested at optimum maturity grapes are chilled minimal skin contact cold fermentation bottled by the end of the year one after another i think when we wrote the guide, the e-guide during COVID, we were laughing going, we had 500 wines with an identical tasting note. Yeah, it uh, can get somewhat uh, uh, monotonous, can't it? But let, let, let's get back to the, um, the, the, the reasons to be cheerful about um, Rhone Rosé, uh, because um, I know you're based in Alp Maritime there, but you keep a very keen eye on prices back home. And um, is it fair to say that uh, Rhone Rosé offers better value? than Provence rosé, for example? On the whole, yes. I'm not sure I know why. I think just the Provence name maybe is pushing prices up a lot of the time. Uh, I am constantly in horror, shock and horror, um, at just how cheap good Tavel is. Mm. You know, it is a stellar wine. It ages better than many reds. Um, it is it is beautiful at all ages. And then they say, oh, well, we can't sell it. It's £29. And you go, um, unbelievable value. The same with more classic rosés, just incredibly good value. Uh, yeah, I would agree. Uh, I suppose in, in, it also depends on the price point. If you're looking at, say, a, a 9 99 Cote de Provence, they will have had to cut some serious, serious corners to get, get it to the consumer at that price. Whereas in Côte du Rhône or maybe Côte du Rhône Village or Luberon, they're able to source some quality grapes still at that price, mm. uh, which is, is a shame for the, the grape growers, but it's really, really good news for the consumer. So yes. if we're projecting here to someone who's enthusiastic about rosé um, and not so enthusiastic about the kind of, uh, you know, uh, 15 quid price point in the UK for a, a decent Côte de Provence rosé mm. and upwards... Where would you uh, suggest they go looking for a bit more bang for their buck? Definitely some of the um, entry-level Tavel. And I distinguish between entry-level and the top cuvées because entry-level Tavel tends to be much more fruity and juicy um, style. I think the cooperatives. Mm. I'm a massive fan of cooperatives. I think many of the cooperatives have access to a vast number of grapes at very good prices. They're doing stellar work in 
development and have access to a lot of things. So the Roan cooperatives, really good for value for money. And they will provide some of the own label wines that we find in the UK. That's right. Yes, exactly. Yes. I, was going to say, I think that they're also there a really sort of important social aspect of maybe even more so in the Rome than elsewhere, that the, they're very much part of the local community in a way that's easy to overlook. Yeah. yeah, interesting point. And do you think the Rhone will ever be you know, as famous for uh, rosé as it is for red? Mm, so um not casting aspersions on fellow wine writers or anything like that um but what we do notice is if there is a dark rosé that is very good such as in Tavel our colleagues tend to say well it's really a red if there's a very pale rosé people kind of go well you know it's almost a white wine so as soon as the wine becomes good people start saying um, it goes elsewhere. Judging from tastings last week around the UK, there was so much enthusiasm. If that can be harnessed, I think they could genuinely really, they're, they're, they're on the cusp of being recognised more widely for doing great wine. I think there's two parts to that. The first part is, can they be recognised for making great rosé? they can be recognised, they can be as famous for making great Rhone Rosé as they are for making great Rhone Red. They will never be famous for making great Provence Rosé in the Rhone. And they need to understand that. We talk a lot about Tavel disproportionately much, because it's not that much of overall volume in the Rhone. We talk so much about it because it's distinctive, because it's the Rhone par excellence. We're not saying that every bit of Rhone Rosé should somehow be a copycat of Tavel, but it needs its own identity if it's to be memorable and if it's to be talked about and if it's to be famous. And what Liz was saying about if it's a if it's a dark rosé, then it's almost a light red. If it's a pale rosé, then it's almost a, a blonde de noir. There's one appellation in the Rhone that we haven't spoken about today is uh, Rasto, the, the Vin du Naturel, the fortified wine. And there's two fortified wine appellations in the Rhone, Muscat de Beaume de Venise and Rasto, both of which make rosé. And I mentioned Rasto because Rasto is actually majority rosé. Most of the wine made, most of the fortified sweet wine made in Rasto is rosé. And legally, if it's aged more than one year, which most of it is, they're no longer allowed to put the word rosé on the label, which is, is a really funny one because it's, it's taking their best rosé and saying, actually, we'll call it an ombre, am- ombre an amber wine, a gold wine, which is a, is a shame. And I think that's the diversity. The Roman can make some fantastic rosés, but they have to be proud of their rosés rather than buying up their neighbours. Ben nearly got thrown off the fortified wine stand at Wine Paris for arguing about this, but um, (laughs) uh, not not that we're belligerent at all. Well, it's... Um, It's a pleasure to give you a, a soapbox uh, to, to stand on uh, as well, Ben. Um, listen, I should let you get back to your um, your stack of, of bottles. I've seen the pictures on Instagram of the line of bottles of rosé awaiting tasting. So we'll let you get back to that. But thank you so much for taking the time out to talk to us about uh, Rhone Rosé, uh, Liz and Ben. Thank you both very much indeed for your, taking the time Thanks out. Lot, thank David. you, David. See you Take soon, care. David. Bye. All right. Bye. 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 
The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in partnership with Club Onologique. The world through the lens of wine and spirits. Okay, let's round off as we always do with a medal winning selection from the IWSC in 2023. And for obvious reasons, our focus is on the Rhone. Uh, let's begin with uh, a silver medal winning white from the Cote de Rhone Appellation with uh, 91 points. Uh, bon Pas, Reserve de Bon Pas 2022. Uh, this is a blend of 40% Grenache Blanc, uh, 30% Viognier and 15% each of both uh, Claret and uh, Marsan. Uh, Alistair Cooper, MW, renowned Rhone expert overseeing the judging. And here's what... Uh, the panel said in their tasting note, a delicious, rich, spiced, buttery, yeasty, aromatic nose, mineral tinged, fruity palate of orange, peach, nectarine, yellow apple and juicy melon with hints of nuts and white chocolate. And next, uh, another silver, uh, Chateau La Verrerie uh, Grande Défonde 2021. Uh, this from uh, Luberon, we talked about uh, its exciting whites earlier with Matt and also its rosé wines too with uh, Liz and Ben. Uh, this one, a, a blend of Roussin and Grenache Blanc, uh, the same judging panel overseen by Alistair featuring uh, Waitrose buyer Daphne Teremetz, uh, Helena Nicklin of the Three Drinkers, uh, Elliot Arwin, uh, third generation wine importer at uh, Arwin Barrett Siegel and sommelier Daniel Stochich. So quite a panel. Uh, they said this lovely, sophisticated elaboration, tropical nose, stone fruit and citrus palate with hints of dried herbs, lime, grapefruit and lemon atop white peach, apricot and green gauge with a light touch of oak. Next, a red silver medal winner, Les Combes de Saint-Sauveur. Terra Vitis 2022 uh, from the Cote de Rhone appellation from the Castel Frere stable, one of uh, France's bigger wine producers. This is 100% Syrah. Uh, the panel's tasting note, lovely juicy fruit aromas leading to a sweetly fruited palate of strawberry, red cherry and deep black fruit laced with orange peel, dried herbs and hints of baked earth tannins. Here's another silver medal winner. Heritage, Cote du Rhone 2022. Uh, the panel describe a wine that is delicious, complex and well-balanced. Chocolate, menthol, dried herbs and orange rind. Lovely black and red fruits, strawberry, cherry and plums is the tasting note. And finally, Domaine du Clos, Chateauneuf du Pape 2018. A silver medal winner with 91 points, a blend, of course, uh, led by Grenache and uh, Moulverdre, Cunoise and Syrah, plus 3% other authorised varieties, it says. Uh, so perhaps there's just a splash of Viognier in there, because that is uh, permitted, of course. Uh, the judges praised a mature, rich nose of dark cherry and ripe blackberry alongside vanilla spice. Toasty oak and earthy leather join rounded soft fruit on the palate with characterful mineral and graphite tones. And what a way to end. That's it for another edition of The Drinking Hour. My thanks to Liz and Ben and, of course, to Matt as well. Until next time, it's goodbye. The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in partnership with Club Onologique. The world through the lens of wine and spirits.
To find out more about Food FM and our content, go to foodfmradio.com.